Acts chapter 4. We're going to be picking up in 23. Acts 4, 23. Just to catch everyone up with what's going on this far into Acts chapter 4 is when we made it to chapter 3, we see this moment in which Peter and John are walking into the temple at the beautiful gate, and there's this lame man sitting there, and he's taking alms, so he's asking for money, uh, very similar to panhandling or anything of that nature that we would commonly see today, but he would be at the front of the temple asking for money of people to provide for him because there's no way he could provide for himself. And Peter and John, they respond by saying, silver and gold I have not, but what we do have I will give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And so Peter then picks him up and he begins to walk and he's praising God and he goes into the temple and everyone else is amazed at what's going on. And so as Peter and John make their way to Solomon's portico, which is this porch over near the Gentiles portion of the temple, the people gather around them. And so Peter, maybe not purposely uh, in this purposeful in this moment to preach the gospel, we see the occasion arises. So Peter preaches the gospel in front of these individuals, which then calls other people to get really mad. These religious leaders of the, the temple. And so they get mad. They arrest Peter. They arrest John. They throw him into jail essentially overnight because it was later in the day in which they had been arrested. And the next day they stand before this council and we were going to make it look like this room it would be like a a half moon right here across from here and peter and john would be where noah is and they would be just berating them with questions and just charging them with things and it simply came down to this idea and this question of in whose name did you heal this man and they say in the name of jesus but they saw where they had no argument for anything that happened why because the lame man was also with them So this man that had been lame for 40-something years is now beside them, and he's beside them, and he is standing. And so they could not argue with what happened. And so what they do is they do the only thing they can do, and they look at the two disciples and they say, go and preach no more in the name of Christ, or teach no more, heal no more in the name of Christ. And so their response is simply, You have to determine for yourself what is right in the eyes of the Lord, but we cannot stop preaching Christ. And then they let him go after charging him again and telling them not to do it again. And that's where we get into verse 23 this morning. It says this. When they they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest said. And the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted up their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said to thee by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with 
the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your end and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to their servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs or wonders are performed through the name of the, your holy servant, Jesus. For when they had prayed this, the place in which they were gathered together were shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in them. God, we know that as we speak to you and pray to you, as we gather in the name of your Son to sing praises to you under the salvation provided by him, God, you are hearing our voices. And so my prayer right now is that as we look at this account in your book of Acts, God, as we recount this moment in which your servants prayed for something very specific, God, that we would understand it. And God, we would seek very similar things in our life. Not so that we can be someone that is earning something from you, but as people that have been saved by you and now seeking to live in light of that salvation. God, be with me. Hide me behind your words and let your words be the truth that is presented. In your son's perfect and holy name. Amen. It's easy for us to take this set of scripture and just teach it or move on with it and not kind of get to the heart of the matter. Because when we think about Peter and we think about John, we often think of these as bold individuals. I mean, Peter was one that was um, presumptuous in a lot of ways. He, 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 his, his body moved before his mind got to think, right? He, he, you know people like that, right? And that's who Peter was. Peter was the guy that was a quick response. He was the one that was eager to do. He's the one that jumped out of the boat and was willing to walk on the water when the Christ, the Savior, called. He was the one that jumped up and defended the Savior when the soldiers tried to take him. Peter was this one that often would move before he thought. And so we think of people like that, and we think of Peter as this very bold and brave individual. But also John, you know... As we think of John, we may think of John as the love author because when you look at the book of John and you look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it, there's this idea of love just coming completely out of his literature here. But John and his brother were also the individuals that were, had a nickname from Jesus. Anybody remember the nickname that they had? Sons of Thunder. Why did they have the nickname Sons of Thunder? Because they asked for, for God's judgment to fall on people that he would swallow them up and kill them with thunder. Okay, so Peter and John are these bold, type A personality people. So often we think of this as a very passive thing where they're just going and reporting and praying for boldness. But what I want us to see about John and Peter this morning is very simply they're no different than any of us. And what I mean by that is they were people that had families. I don't know if they were married, unmarried. I don't know if they had children, but they had families. They had loved ones. They had things in this life that could have been taken away from them. They had even their own life that could have been sacrificed. And the people they gathered with, and we're going to get to who that is in just a moment, they were people with a similar life. 
They had families, they had loved ones, they had homes, they had jobs, they had occupations. We often look at people in the scripture and we separate them from all reality and we think of them as just almost fictional people. But these are real people that in a moment like this was faced with the idea, finally, that they could die for the sake of Christ. This is the first moment that after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that the disciples are faced with this reality that the fact that Jesus says they will hate you for they hated me and they will persecute you because they persecuted me is becoming to be real. And this is why they gather and they pray for boldness. It's because they were setting up and seeing firsthand what could come of following Jesus and what I want to say about this is very simply we should pray for similar things revival is going on God is moving but still they're committed to prayer it's not because they're immature it's not because Christ isn't moving it's not because God's not doing a work it's not because there seems to be this stagnant uh, stagnant relationship between the church and this cultural around them It's not because these miraculous things aren't occurring. It's because in the midst of God working, persecution occurred, and now they need the boldness of Christ to continue. Because it would have been very easy for any of these people to see their loved ones being persecuted and to abandon Christ. And so they prayed simply that God would give them the power. And so as we look at this, we're not going to look at this as more of a narrative, though it certainly is a narrative. We're going to look at this as a prayer. And as a prayer, we're going to look at how they prayed. We're going to look at what they prayed. And we're going to see the result of their prayer, okay? So we're going to look at how, what, and result. How, what, and result. And in the how, we're going to look at verses 23 in the first part of 24. And then for what they prayed, we're going to look at 24b, per se, to verse 30. And then on the result, we're going to look at 31 together. So let's look at the prayer itself. Let's look at how they prayed. So it says, to begin with, in verse 23, it says, when they were released. So when they were released, the, the key word, the they here, is pointing to two, one or two things, okay? It's Peter pointing either to Peter and John, or it's pointing to Peter, John, and said lame man. I don't know if the lame man there is not. But what we do know is Peter and John is there. So when they were released, when Peter and John, and possibly this lame man, were released, they went to their friends. And reported what the chief priest and the elders said to them. So when it says their friends, um, I'm not going to pull the Greek out. I don't remember as much as I wish I did. But there's a specific Greek word here used for friends. And it's only used like a few other places in the entire New Testament. But that word for Greek there, it it really just means their people. Um, And so it's, it's friends, we translate it to that because it's, Hard to just say it went to their people. But I think that's something we understand. It, they went to their people. And even friends are that, right? When, when my daughter Lottie uh, refers to seeing her friends, so often now she's talking about Camden and Thea and Melody and even Mr. Micah and Mr. Noah. That's the, that's the one she names. Sorry, Reese and Nick and Molly. But that's who she names. And David. Sorry, man. Your kids are more important. But that's who she names. That's her people. And what he's talking about here is they went to their people. They, they didn't go back to their families. They didn't go back to whatever. They went to their friends, their family, their, their, their people, right? 
And what I would want to argue here is where they went back to was the gathering of the saints. Their people were the people they had in common with Christ. Now, is it the full 5,000 or is it just a portion of the 5,000? We don't know. But their people were certainly people that had trusted in Jesus. So when they had been released, they went back to their friends, their people, and they reported what the chief priests and elders said to them. So what they reported is what we looked at really in verse, let's see, 17. It says, but in order that it may not spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more of anyone in this name. So they called and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they went back and they told the people exactly what the, the elders and the chief priests and all these people had warned them. So Peter and John, possibly lame man with them, goes back to the church, their friends, their people. They report exactly what was said to them. Verse 24. This is the more of how they prayed, okay? And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, we're going to get to the sad part in what they prayed. But the how they prayed, what I want us to see, and it's going to seem very simple, and because it is, but it's transformative. How they pray is by lifting their voices together. They prayed together. And what we should see in this, in just a moment, we're going to see a very specific prayer. But this prayer is only one prayer that was prayed. And it was prayed out loud. Now, did other people pray out loud? Possibly. But what I want us to see in this is this isn't just a normal gathering of the saints. This isn't just a normal meal or time together where they're, they're, they're you know, just talking with another, one another, spending time with one another, or even walking through Scripture or talking of the truth of Christ together. This is a time where they gather together specifically for prayer. So in the church culture, we would call this a prayer meeting. They're gathered specifically for the purpose of prayer. This is exactly what's going on here. They're gathered together and they're praying together. It's not separated. Peter and John certainly may have prayed on the way to see these people. But what they saw important was that they would gather their people together and then they would pray. But what you should see in this is not Peter and it's not John praying. It's the group praying, but the prayer that we're going to look at in just a moment, it's just some person that's a part of the church. And by the, the language used and by the rhetoric used in the formation of the prayer, it's most likely some uneducated nobody within the church. What I mean by that, it's not an elder, it's not a pastor, it's not a disciple, it's just somebody that had followed Jesus. It's somebody that most likely would have been one of the more recent individuals saved or one of the 120 that followed Jesus. It wasn't one of the 12. It's just a normal person within this church context. So how they prayed, I think, is so important. If they prayed together. And so I want to answer, ask and answer this question because I think maybe you've thought of this before, but you don't realize you've thought of it before. But what are you to do in a moment like earlier that after we sang, Great Are You, Lord, Nick prayed out loud. As a church, what is your responsibility in that moment? 
Um, I was actually listening to someone speak of this, and he used the reference, this isn't the time where you think about the pot roast cooking or the game that is going to come on or what you have to do at your job. In that moment in the prayer, that's when someone is praying out loud, but they're doing so corporately for all of us to join in and to think through what is being prayed and pray similar things. When someone is praying out loud in a gathering, a corporate prayer, that is the time to where us as individuals focus in on who God is, not think about everything else in the world. And that is a hard discipline to do, especially if you get to people like myself that pray for a longer period of time. But that's what we should do. And so in this moment, we see how they pray very simply. They lifted up their voices and prayed together to God. I know that seems so simple and so plain and ordinary, but that's because it is. But it's also very important and crucial that we recognize that. Is that in the moment of possible persecution, what the gathered saints do is they pray to the Lord together. And so we're going to see how we see how they prayed. But what I want us to see now is what they prayed. Now, I want to be clear about this. Is I don't think we should look at 24B through 30 and let this be a prescription of how we pray every prayer. Okay? Uh, like often when the disciples asked Jesus how we should pray, he gave them what? The Lord's Prayer. And it was almost a model for them to use when praying. I don't think this is one of those moments. See, the book of Acts is often looked at as prescriptive, meaning something we should do. But sometimes it's just descriptive. But I, but I say that, but I also want to say, I do think there's principles within their prayer that we should take and say, that's something that would be beneficial. Or maybe you look at it and you say, maybe I should do this more. Maybe I should do that more. Because there's some things about how they pray that I think we have forgotten in the 21st century that would be so, so important and crucial for us as we communicate to a perfect and holy God. So what they pray, starting in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. And through the mouth of David, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Those are some simple verses, but there's a lot there. Sovereign Lord just means the, the ruler of all. The one in total control, the one that is the greatest of them all. Sovereign Lord. But then he goes on, he says, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So sovereign Lord and then creator. But not only is he sovereign Lord and not only is he creator, but who spoke through the mouth of the father David by the Holy Spirit. So the one that is in control of even the thoughts and words point, uh, point, uh, coined and written by David. So the way they begin their prayer and how they pray to God and what they're saying to God is first and foremost is calling on the attributes of who God is. What I have found in preparing for this sermon and evaluating my own prayer life is that way too often, and I think many of us fall in this category, way too often, my prayers to God begins as something as simple as Father. And God is certainly our Father, and that's an amazing thing in and of itself. But what we see in this and what they're praying is they're calling not only to God's attention, because He does not need to know, because He certainly knows already, 
but even to the attention of the people in the room with them and themselves, who God is. That he is sovereign, that he is creator, and that he is the one who works even through his servants. I think it's important that we would note in that is how helpful it would be for us as we begin praying to God to recall his attributes, his goodness, his greatness, even the wrathfulness of God at times. Why do I say that, though? We're going to get to it as we walk through this. But the reason why I say that is because their attributes they name here is unfolding their trust in God. Because they're going to have a petition to God in just a moment where they're praying specifically for God to do something. And it's all grounded in the fact that they know who God is. And they're displaying that in the way they're speaking to God. But let's look at this quotation for Psalm chapter 2. It says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2. I read it earlier. But I want to explore that just a little bit. So if you want to flip with me into Psalm 2. We read the first two verses essentially. And it goes on in verse 3. It says, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. But look at what David's response here in verse 4 is. He who sits in the heavens laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. That he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make your nation your heritage. In the ends of the earth your possessions, you will break them with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces in potter's vessels. The reason why that's important is let's look back at verse 1. David is asking this question. It's almost a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot in vain. And he goes on specifically, The king of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, I'm going to pause here. He says against the Lord and against his anointed, because he's tying these two things together. That the one that is against the Lord and the one that is against the Lord's people, the anointed one, the one set apart for him, or, the, or against the Lord in him of himself. To recall the memory, you have the moment in which Paul being called Saul at the time, encounters the risen Savior. And his words to Saul was what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church or my people, but me. Because Christ is the head of the church. And when the church is being persecuted, it is God who is being persecuted. But David is asking this question. Why do they nations rage? And why do they plot in vain? Why, why are they doing that? Is what he's asking. But what is his background of asking this question? His background of asking this question is found in verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. When the nations rage, when the enemy plots, 
When the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord, when the rulers take counsel to one another to come against the anointed one, to come against God himself, what is God's response is that God laughs. That's what he's saying here. But let's look at what the early church would have expressed this meaning to be, because they do so in verse 27. It says, For truly, in this city, there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Saying that this moment, Psalm 2, is what they saw in their life. That in that city, gathered together, there was kings, Herod and Pontius Pilate. There was leaders of the Gentiles and leaders of Israel that was gathered and they were, they were casting lots. They, they were coming against the anointed one, the Savior. But 28, we can't miss this. They were gathered. They were responsible. They were doing it. Just like he's told these people over and over again, you crucified him. You can't miss 28, though. He says, and now to do, he says, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. He's saying, look, they're gathered against your anointed one. They're gathered against your servant. They were gathered against Jesus, the kings of the earth, the, even the Israelites. There's so much I could go into that, but I'm not going to do that today. They were gathered against your anointed one. They're, a, they're at fault. They have done some evil and wicked things. But what they recognize in 28 is to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Man is responsible for evil. But God was certainly working out His sovereign plan through this evil act of these kings of the earth. The reason why I said earlier, when you look at the attributes they name, it's the heart of their prayer because that's what you see jumping off the pages in 25 through 28. God, your sovereign Lord. God, you're working out your sovereign plan. You're working out the plan that you predestined to take place. You're working out what your hand and your plan is. God, you're the creator of all, so you're in control of all. Everyone is subject to you. Everyone is accountable to you. They're, they're holding and they're resting in this fact that they serve a God that is greater than the enemies that are standing before them. They're resting in the fact that they serve a God that was greater than the ones that killed Jesus. They're resting in the fact that they have a God that is greater than the ones that even came against David so many years before. So let's look at verse 29. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats. And to grant to your servants to continue to speak the words with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand and heal in signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We're getting into specifically what they're praying for. This is their petition. See, they begin with pulling out the attributes of who God is. 
then they even use scripture to pray to God. And I think that's such an amazing practice that I that I failed over the last several years of my life to implement that I'm trying to get better at. They use scripture to call out these attributes, to remind themselves and pray to God of who God is. And now they're petitioning to God. And what I want us to see in that very simply is their petitioning wasn't first and they didn't easily get to it. They're praying to God. They're addressing who God is. They're reminding themselves of who God is. They're looking at Scripture to understand who God is. And then they finally get to this moment where they're asking God for something. And what we'll see very plainly is that it's not a very selfish prayer. It's a very pointed prayer. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. So what he's saying here, it says, And now, Lord, he's saying, And now, sovereign Lord, who takes the evil acts of man and women, men and women, to do whatever your hand and your plan is predestined to take place, now, Lord, that does all of these things, look upon their threats. God, you've worked in evil things. God, you've worked in horrific moments. God, you are a God that takes horrific and terrible things and does amazing and great and glorious work out of them. God, you're the God that can take what man means for evil and do it for your glory and your good and the good of those who love and trust in you. God, you are the one that does that. Now, look at their threats and grant to your servants. He's saying, God, you did this in the past. And God, if you were sovereign over the, the death of your own son by the evil works of man, you certainly can take a small moment like the, the charge against your people, against these wicked religious leaders to stop speaking of your Savior. God, you can take this moment and God, you can give us what? Boldness. They don't ask for the persecution to stop. They don't ask for the religious leaders to just stop coming at them. They say, God, will you give us boldness? In moments where their loved ones could die for the gospel, in moments where their Religious leaders, their, their church leaders will certainly die for the gospel as we will see as we continue through the book of Acts. They don't ask for a deliverance from those moments. They ask for boldness in those moments. Why? Because they had a good understanding that evil things are often used for good things. That the evil work of man does not thwart or stop or prevent the plan of God, but rather often catapults it to where it needs to be. That's not all they asked for, though. Verse 30. That you ask for boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. This reminds me of what Peter says. He says, not by our... How does he word it specifically? Hold on. Sorry. By our, our piety. Power and piety. Thank you. 
not by our own power, not by our own piety. They understood that this wasn't something of a miraculous work that only the disciples could do. They saw this rightly as a thing that God did. He says, while you stretch out your hand, often in Scripture the hand of God is referring to the power of God, to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they not only asked for boldness, but they asked for God to continue to do these things that was opening up opportunities. And it's not because they wanted to see this miraculous thing done. It's not because they wanted to see lame men walk. It's not because they want to see dead men rise. It's not because they want to see blind men see or they wanted to multiply food or any of those things. I would argue that they understood rightly that this was a sign and a proof of who they were serving and that was Christ. And as we've looked at time in and time out over the last four weeks, is that these moments were often used to soften and harden the hearts of individuals to hear the gospel. And so they're praying not only for boldness, but for God to continue to do what God is going to do to open up opportunities for the gospel to be preached. I think what we can understand and learn from that is something that we're trying to implement more as we gather together at 8.30 on Sundays and even in our community groups. Is that oftentimes God put people, God places individuals in our life that in, we desire to share the gospel with because we rightly understand that the only way anyone can be saved is through the name of Christ. The only way they can understand and know who Christ is is that the word is being preached and that the word is being taught so it's our responsibility to share the gospel with people, not because other people are ignorant or dumb and they need to understand it better, but because the only way they can have true salvation is through Christ and we have the message of Christ. So I think the way that we can look at this and say, God, continue to give us miraculous moments or God, do miraculous things to soften the hearts of your people. A few weeks ago, I said often our possessions or things in which we can leverage to soften the hearts of individuals, meaning that we can provide for someone in need or have them over for a meal or we can just use our ability to you know, do whatever hobby with somebody to get to know people and all those things. I think we should certainly cover those things in prayer. That we would pray that God would not only give us boldness when we need the boldness, but he would give us a right understanding of our circumstances and he would open up opportunities for us to proclaim the gospel in those situations. I'm not going to go into detail in this moment, but one way for me personally is coaching baseball that I'm praying that God will do this for. And I'm going to ask you guys, some already, but I'm going to ask the rest of you in this moment to pray that God would open up that opportunity through that encounter. But ultimately, in this prayer, we see that they prayed, how? By coming together, lifting up their voices together. And apparently they were praying out loud to some extent, if this be uh, individually or if this be at the same time. But they were vocalizing who God was. What they prayed is they prayed that God is a God of attributes that we should recognize. They use scripture and they pray for specific things, that God would give them boldness, and God would continue to do the works that open up the opportunities for the gospel. 
before we look at the result, I'll say this about verse 30. Is we should pray for the same thing. Not only in the physical things that we can do, not only in spiritual conversations, but we certainly should pray for God to do miraculous things. That God would heal people, that God would take care of people, that he would, he would provide for them. We certainly should pray that over people's lives. And so I don't want that to be me skipping through that quickly to focus on our time of sharing the gospel with people to say, I don't think that should be the case. Because I certainly think we should. I think it may look different now than it did then, but I don't think it always looks different now. But we certainly should pray and seek God. And in these things, we certainly should. James tells us that we have not because we ask not, meaning we don't pray enough for it. So what is the result of their prayer? And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Two things here, maybe three. It says, when they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. If you're still flipped over there a little bit, Psalms chapter 2, the very end of that. I'm sorry. It's not Psalms 2. Give me one second. Second Samuel 22. We read it this week in our reading plan. Verse 8. This comes from Psalms 18, but I'm going to read it from Second Samuel. David in his, we'll start in verse 6, says, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I called from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came to his ear. Then the earth reeled and rocked in the foundation of the threshold and quaked because he was angry. God often responds to his people in a physical way in the Old Testament and even in the early church. In the first two chapters of Acts, we saw this in the day of Pentecost. And the way in which the Holy Spirit fell upon them was like rushing wind. Now God's responding to them. And he's really just bringing the comfort to his people in this moment by saying, I hear your prayer and I'm answering your prayer. And to do so, what he does is that he shakes the threshold. He says, and they were filled with the Spirit and they continue to speak the word with boldness. God answered their prayer. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the result because it's just simple. God gave them a comfort. Oftentimes in our life, it's not a rumbling of the building, but a call, calm inner sense of it's going to be okay. God's got this. At least that's how it manifests in my life often. But then he gave them the boldness they were seeking. They didn't stop. They continue to preach the gospel. Then when you get into chapter 5, we see that more signs and wonders are done. Apostles are arrested for the sake of preaching the gospel. Time in and time out, boldness is displayed through the rest of the book of Acts. And here, God is answering their prayer. Now what does all of this mean to us? 
I said earlier, I don't think all of it is prescriptive, but I do think some of it is helpful. So I think the first thing I just want to call us just to note again, as I've already had once, is acknowledging God for who He is relative to what we're petitioning for is not only something that we see as an example in Scripture, but it's something that would benefit us. If we're seeking for God to do something miraculous and save us, certainly we're going to talk about His sovereignty and His goodness and His loveness, lovingness. So I want to encourage you, maybe as you pray, to think through this and look up and understand more about the attributes of God. And as you pray to God, call to remembrance for yourself as you pray to God His attributes, who He is. Then we also see here an example of using Scripture in prayer. I think that's a good practice for us to get in. I think the biggest application here is to simply pray. I know that's basic, right? But in the midst of this moment in which Peter and John are looked at and says, don't preach or don't teach and don't heal in the name of Christ again. First thing they do is they go to their church, their people, and they pray together for boldness. And I'll say this. And this is going to sound like a, maybe like an odd statement. But a church that does not pray together, I would argue, is not a church at all. The right preaching of God's Word, we can sing the best songs there are. We can sing the most biblical songs. We could even open up and only sing Scripture itself, and we can sit under the preaching of God's Word that is solid, biblical, without error of any sort. We can go and we can proclaim the gospel. We can make disciples. But if it's all not grounded and rooted in prayer, then I would argue that it is pointless. And I would argue also that up until this last month, due to the failure of myself, that's where a lot of it's been. I think the book of Acts has been a very timely message for us. And the importance of us praying together as a church, as individuals, as husbands, as wives, as men, as women, confessing sins to one another, pouring out to one another our needs, praying for those who need to know Christ, praying for those that we're trying to open up opportunities to share the gospel with. A church that does not do those things is a church that is dying, even if it looks like they're not. So my very simple application for us this morning Let's pray together. Um, Nick's going to come. And I don't do this stuff often, so it is what it is. Nick's going to come and he's going to strum this. Well, actually, let's not even do that. Let's pray together. If you want to sit where you're going to pray, if you want to stand, pray. If you want to go somewhere else in this building and pray, I don't don't care. Uh, I prefer you stay in this room. But I want us to pray together as a church. And I want you to look at this and let's ask for very similar things. 
Just ask for boldness and ask for God's miraculous work. Then we could sum those two things up that way. That God would give us boldness to preach the gospel and then God would do a miraculous work. For us as individuals, the only way we're going to be self-successful in sharing the gospel is those two things. And for us as a church, the only way we're going to be successful is to do those two things. And oftentimes we can take this message and I can give application and we can go and go home and do all those things. But I think this is a time to where we look at the example in Scripture and we actually live it out together in this moment. So I'm going to go and I'm going to pray over here. I'm going to actually kneel and pray and I'm going to invite anybody who wants to kneel with me and pray too. Um, and pray for those two things. And whenever you get done, just sit in your chair and wait until all is done, and then we're going to sing Amazing Grace together. I'm going to pray for us as we go into that, okay? Father, you are a sovereign God of the universe that has created it for your glory. God, you are the one that does miraculous things. God, you are the one who redeems and saves Father, you are the one who worked in the life of the disciples. God, you are the one that even worked in the evil deeds of wretched men. In the life of David, but also in the life of all of the Old Testament, but more specifically, Father, in the life of our Savior. God, they are responsible for their sin and their wickedness. But Father, you have taken those things and worked them for your glory, your will. Nothing was by your surprise. And Father... Nothing going on in this building and nothing that will happen in the life of Redeemer will be by your surprise either. But Father, will be only to the will, your perfect and holy will. And so Father, we pray that that's exactly what we see unfold and that we're acceptable and we're responsive to it. As we go and we pray separately or together, God, let us find all things in common.